It's Wednesday, February 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. On Thursday, NASA is in for seven minutes of terror. The new Mars rover, Perseverance, will be landing, and everything has to be perfect for the mission to be a success. The entry, descent, and landing requires a heat shield, parachute, rocket thrusters, and a sky crane that will lower the rover onto the Martian surface. After that, the real mission starts as the rover will collect soil samples and also launch an autonomous helicopter. Christian Davenport, space reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how it will all play out. Next, the Department of Homeland Security, which was founded in response to 9-11, is beginning a pivot from focusing on foreign threats to a growing concern in the U.S., domestic terrorism. While the FBI usually looks into terrorism and extremists, the latest threat assessments from the DHS have pointed to increased activity by these groups and needs to reorient itself to these current threats. As always, there are concerns of civil liberty violations and politicization of the department. Nick Miroff, reporter for The Washington Post, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So Perseverance chooses that uh, that target, and then um, and that all happens in the the 2.4 seconds it takes for Perseverance to send commands for us to separate from the back shell and start a freefall. Joining us now is Christian Davenport, space reporter at the Washington Post and author of The Space Barons. Thanks for joining us, Christian. Yeah, thanks for having me. As usual, we got a lot of space news going on, and Thursday is going to be an interesting day. NASA's Mars rover Perseverance is going to be landing on Mars. They call the whole process from when it gets into the right position to the landing, they call it seven minutes of terror. And, you know, it's one of these situations of a scientific and engineering feat that is really unmatched anywhere else. It takes so much planning. Everything has to go right to the smallest detail for something like this to be pulled off. And that's why they call it seven minutes of terror. And so we're expecting this to happen on Thursday. So Christian, start us off. What are we looking at with this Mars rover landing? It's a big deal. And you're right. It is seven minutes of terror. Of course, there's that communication delay of about 11 minutes or so. So they're just sitting there waiting and getting the signals back from the spacecraft. But everything they're finding out, it's already happened. But here's the thing, Mars, it doesn't have a thick atmosphere like we have here on Earth but it has just enough of an atmosphere that it can cause a problem. So it actually, they need still a heat shield because as it's going through it really, really fast, like 12,000 miles per hour, that is going to generate a lot of heat. And then there is enough though for it to uh, deploy the parachute and touch down, but they still have to fire those uh, retro rockets to slow the spacecraft down propulsively. And then if you remember from, they use the same thing in Curiosity, they call it the sky crane, where there's a sort of, spacecraft above the rover that lowers the rover down with these cables onto the surface of Mars. And it's just crazy if you if you think about it, the Earth is moving in orbit around the sun. Mars is moving in orbit around the sun. The spacecraft is going to travel like 300 million miles to hit a target in this crater that's 4.8 miles wide. And my colleague did the math and basically calculated that that's the equivalent of if you threw a dart from Washington, D.C., and we're aiming at a bullseye that is about an inch in diameter, the dart would travel from D.C. to hit the bullseye in Dallas. That's how precise <laughs> you would have to be. We've done this before with Mars. You know, obviously, we have a rover out there and everything already. 
but what's different about this mission? There's a couple of different major differences for it. So it's going to a place on Mars called Jezero Crater, which is fascinating because if you look at the images of it, I mean, even as a layperson, you look at it and you're like, it's clear there was water there. I mean, it looks like in my backyard, in a way, after a big rainstorm, you can see where the water sort of runs through the surface of the earth and leaves those current marks. And, and there's sort of a, a delta there. And that is a great place to go to look for signs of past sort of ancient microbial life. So it's going to do that. It also, and this is pretty cool, it's going to have a microphone. So scientists will actually be able to listen to Mars. I mean, clearly the other rovers have taken lots of pictures of, of Mars. We have a sense of what it looks like, what the topography is like. We've got a lot of orbiters imaging Mars as well, but this will be the first time we'll be able to listen to it. And there's something super cool that Perseverance has tucked under its belly. It's got this tiny little helicopter called Ingenuity that's going to try to do a powered flight on Mars. So it truly is like a, a Wright Brothers moment on another planet where it would be the first powered flight on Mars. So that would be really cool, too. And that's a detective demo that we've never seen before. You mentioned how the topography of the whole thing and, you know, craters and cliffs and all that. I mean, obviously, that adds to the difficulty of landing since it's all being done remotely. But it's also using this new system. It has a bunch of artificial intelligence on it basically scoping out the terrain so it could help pick the right place to land. So as I said, it's so much that goes into it. This is just an, another layer of difficulty. It's doing that totally autonomously. It's not like there's somebody there flying it remotely. I mean, they just can't do that given the great, great distance. The spacecraft has to be able to do that on its own. I mean, one of the analogies we use in our coverage of this is when Neil Armstrong was landing the lunar module on the moon's surface, the landing site where they wanted to put it down initially, they realized there were too many craters and rocks. And Neil Armstrong had to fly the spacecraft to find a better spot that was safer for landing. And he was like famously running out of fuel in those final minutes. Was he going to be able to find a clear spot? Well, here there is no Neil Armstrong or the Neil Armstrong. It's a spacecraft itself that's going to be <laughs> right. doing that sensing. But the technology has come a long way in that regard. And now for the actual mission. I mean, these are just the difficulties of it landing. What the actual mission is, it's going to collect samples. This could be part of a three-mission campaign to return those samples, soil samples, back to Earth. That in and of itself is another difficulty. So what is it going to be doing while it's there? That you know could be a really cool part of the mission. If it's able to land successfully, and fingers crossed that it does, and it's able to take these samples from Mars and then essentially catch them, store them, on places on the surface where then on a previous mission, a spacecraft could come and retrieve them and bring that back. Now, that wouldn't happen for many years to come. And there would, you know, there's going to have to be a whole other program designed for that sample return mission. But that could be a really big deal for scientists to actually get those artifacts back. Today, when we talk about the Apollo program, there are scientists who are studying the rocks and regolith that were brought back from the moon, you know, in the late 60s and the 70s. That's provided a lot of science. Imagine for how many years, how many decades scientists would be studying those samples from Mars. That would be incredible. The last wrinkle to all of this is that it's a crowded scene there. The United States is not the only game in town. China and the United Arab Emirates also are in the neighborhood right now. Yeah, I mean, it's like there's a traffic jam right now around Mars. And that's caused because Mars and Earth are on the same side of the sun 
once every 26 months or so. So that's when the orbits line up that you could get to Mars quickly and efficiently. And we had that window this past summer. That's when a lot of these missions were launched. So you've got the China mission and the UAE mission is is really fascinating. I mean, this is the first time an Arab country has sent a a spacecraft into deep space, into Mars, and that's going to orbit Mars and study the atmosphere. The Chinese mission is, is also in orbit around Mars. It will eventually descend a rover onto the Martian surface sometime in the spring. Initially, they were talking April. Now it's maybe May. We don't know exactly when that would happen. But that's a big step for China, which, as you remember, a couple of years ago, landed a spacecraft on the far side of the moon, which had never been done before. So they've got a lot of ambitions as well. So yeah, a lot of missions going to Mars right about now. Well, very hopeful for a successful mission. Christian Davenport, space reporter at The Washington Post and author of The Space Barons. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We have to make sure that never again could, you know, domestic terrorism groups attack our institutions of government. And that's going to mean, you know, scrubbing out uh, and stripping down to the studs any white nationalist groups uh, in our country. Joining us now is Nick Miroff, reporter at The Washington Post covering the Department of Homeland Security. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Good to be with you, Oscar. We've been seeing this kind of pivot for the Department of Homeland Security. Obviously, it was founded in response to 9-11 and looking into foreign threats. And over the years, it's kind of had to start looking inward more to domestic threats. Obviously, we see a lot of extremist groups, white supremacy groups, and we've seen the attacks that they've done here in the United States. And so right now, even after the Capitol Hill riots, there's even more emphasis now for the Department of Homeland Security to look towards these domestic threats. So, Nick, tell us what we're seeing with this. Well, this is something that has been building for quite some time, you know, as, you know, the perceived threat from al-Qaeda and even ISIS started to fade over the last few years, we had a series of very horrific, high-profile domestic incidents. I'm thinking of the Las Vegas shooting, the attack on the Tree of Life synagogue, and then came the El Paso shooting, which was the deadliest attack on Hispanic Americans in modern U.S. history and a very obvious example of a white supremacist carrying out an act of targeted violence and, and real, frankly, terrorism. And so this had started to really awaken folks, I think, at DHS towards this threat. And there was also pressure coming from some lawmakers, particularly Democrats, saying, well, what is the biggest threat that faces the homeland today? And it's these domestic violent extremists and white supremacists. Now, that effort, which was already starting to make some progress, at DHS kind of as as an agency, but not necessarily getting picked up with a lot of attention at the White House under Trump. That was really thrown into overdrive by the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. And since then, what we've seen are even louder calls for DHS to really make a hard pivot toward these groups and see what can this big internal security agency do to better protect Americans. The problem is that the path ahead is not entirely clear. The purview of, you know, monitoring extremist groups, terrorism, all that stuff usually fell under the FBI. So what kind of infrastructure does DHS have? Does the FBI have to do this now? Because I, I know, you know, in reading through your piece, 
a lot of this also has to do, you know, we need good coordination with our state and local officials too, because this is where this is brewing up. So the big agencies need to coordinate with them. But so what does the infrastructure look like right now? So that's a great question because a lot of people have this sort of false impression, maybe from television, you know, that there are such thing as a kind of standing contingent of Homeland Security officers ready to spring into action. When the reality is, is not that. You're right. The FBI is going to remain the primary investigative and prosecutorial arm you know, of the Justice Department to really monitor criminal terrorists and arrest them and go after them. What DHS can do is both more limited, but also has the potential for more expansion because DHS is so big. It's got nearly 10 times as many employees overall, if you add up all of DHS's different agencies. The main things that DHS can do, one would be through this new office that's been specifically set up to look at this challenge. It's called the Office of Targeted Violence and Terrorism Prevention. And its work is primarily preventative. It started to hire regional coordinators around the country who are supposed to work with state and local officials to identify kind of at-risk individuals or groups and try to stage interventions with them, but also to collect information and distribute it to state and local authorities. And as you said, that is one of DHS's biggest assets is that it's forged all these relationships around the country with state and local police departments to help be vigilant against foreign terrorist threats. Well, now it could potentially apply some of those relationships in a more domestic space. The other big thing is the Office of Intelligence and Analysis, which is kind of the DHS intelligence arm. It has had a number of stumbles in recent years. And when it was gathering intelligence on the sort of on the threat from radical anarchist groups and others in Portland, it was dinged a little bit, especially by Democrats and kind of stepped back. But there's going to be I think we're going to see more pressure on on that agency to be a more active player in the intelligence space. And then lastly, I would just say DHS does have the Immigration and Customs Enforcement's Homeland Security Investigations Arm, which was created after 9-11 to be kind of like another FBI, you know, an armed um, investigative body. And what they've done primarily until now is gone after drug traffickers and human smugglers and so forth. But they have thousands of agents of HSI agents around the country who, if oriented more toward this type of threat, could potentially play a role. Balance is always a very important thing, especially when you have these big agencies and there's concerns. So one concern is the splitting of attention. The Department of Homeland Security, people are concerned, you know, you shouldn't completely turn away from foreign threats. That's one. And then two, just concerns about civil liberties. You know, now we're looking more into people here in our own homeland. And so there's always groups that are concerned about surveillance and different things like that. I mean, you think about, you know, some of the anxieties that came with the creation of this thing with this kind of Orwellian name, right, the Department of Homeland Security. And its focus until now has been almost entirely on exterior threats. And what DHS is especially good at is finding out who is trying to enter the country, who they are, what their story is, and potentially stopping them. So the idea that this very large and potentially powerful security agency that has access to so much information could potentially play a more active role monitoring Americans is going to be, you know, a, a major issue going forward. That said, when we've had several, we've seen several, you know, hearings since the January 6th attack, and it's notable that there is, seems to be real bipartisan energy behind some kind of new domestic terrorism authorities that would potentially, you know, give 
both the Department of Justice more latitude to charge people, but also I think you, you'll see DHS taking a, a more active role in this space. There are other folks, particularly who were part of the early days of the Department of Homeland Security and its founding and, and are highly aware of its founding mission, who say, you know, don't take your eye off the ball. It's very important for DHS to remain focused on external threats. But I do think that that's something that DHS, given its size, and its broad mandate would have the ability to do. It's not like uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, which is very focused on, you know, who's trying to enter the country. It's not like they're necessarily going to play a big role in in this new space, but there are other DHS components that could um, potentially do more. Now, obviously, this is a big government agency. How does politics play into this? What do lawmakers want to do and how do they want to punish these people? I saw I mentioned I saw in your article you mentioned something about, you know, sanctions, things like that for people that provide support to these types of groups. So how are lawmakers getting involved in, in this kind of pivot for the Department of Homeland Security? Well, I think that's where some of the controversy will start to come in. You know, I think we're still in this phase where people remain shocked and disgusted by what happened on January 6th, and they want to do something. They want to do something in a bipartisan spirit. One of the things they have talked about are, you know, enhancing some of these laws so that, for example, providing material to support to domestic terrorists and white supremacists who commit violent acts, that could be a crime. But once we get into the kind of nitty or gritty of how of how these agencies will function and what potentially expanded roles they'll take on. I do think we'll start to see some pushback, particularly from Republicans right now who are worried about this idea that these agencies could be used to disproportionately spy on the party that's not in power or by naming, you know, white supremacists and domestic extremists, that these, you know, federal agents will become somewhat skewed toward groups with a certain ideology. That said, all of the statistics show and when when DHS produced its first homeland threat assessment last October, the numbers clearly show that more Americans have been killed by white supremacists and and domestic extremists than foreign actors. And most of those are right-wing leaning groups. And obviously those numbers are very skewed by the tragedy in El Paso. As you mentioned, some of these reports and threat assessments that have been put out by DHS point to this being kind of the emerging threat for us, at least here domestically, but still it would take maybe five to 10 years or something for the DHS to really build out this effort a little bit more. One thing that we could potentially imagine is that is the DHS will, and, and this would be potentially like this, one of the safer things they could do, would be to really go big into this space of prevention and try to build out their network of regional coordinators who would work closely with local police departments and state police to both help monitor at-risk individuals or extremist groups but also stage interventions. And one of the things that the literature and the, and the research really points to is that people at times of great insecurity and hardship, particularly during something like this pandemic, are, are subject to radicalization and recruitment by extremist groups. And so, you know, this past year has left so many Americans distressed and it's, it's created a ripe environment for this type of recruitment. And so, you know, I think Going forward, that that types of research could potentially inform the way DHS takes on a growing role in this in the domestic terrorism space. Nick Miroff, reporter at The Washington Post covering the Department of Homeland Security. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Oscar. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.